Welcome to AnthroTalking, a podcast series from Stockholm University's Anthropology Department. Like most people listening to this podcast will know, Japanese people tend to take a lot of photos. It's a stereotype, but there is some truth in it. So I was very intrigued by where do all these photos go, and what happens to them. I had those questions in 2003, but in 2009 I really started doing research about it. Quote by Inge Daniels. Hello, my name is Fredrik Niemann, and thank you for listening to another episode of Antho Talking. In this episode, you will hear me talk to Inge Daniels. She is an associate professor in social anthropology at University of Oxford and also a fellow at St. Cross College. She got her PhD from University College London in 2001 and has been published in several well-established journals, such as the Journal of Material Culture, the Journal of Royal Anthropological Institute and Emotion, Space and Society. In 2010, she published the book The Japanese House, Material Culture, in the modern home at Berg Publishers in Oxford, where she discussed how highly private domestic lives are lived in Japan. At the moment, she's writing another book on the topic of amateur photographic practices in contemporary Japan, a topic which she also discussed during a talk at the Department of Social Anthropology, Stockholm University, on the 5th of November 2015, named Beyond the Frame, an ethnography of the amateur photographic practices in contemporary Japan. And it's this talk that this episode of Anthrotalking will be centred around. Thank you for wanting to take part in doing this. Mm -hmm. And uh, I thought we could start with some more uh, background questions. So uh, first of all, how did you start your career in anthropology and which topic were of interest to you? Oh, that's that's not an easy question, not an easy answer, I think. Um, Well, I started in Japanese studies, so I was mainly interested in um, studying Japanese. I did that for four years in Belgium. And uh, I was obsessed by learning uh, kanji, which is the Japanese characters. And that enabled me, having finished a four-year degree there, to go to Japan. I won a scholarship. And what was amazing about the scholarship is that if you studied very hard, the Japanese government, who gives these scholarships, they would pay for you to do your MA in Japan. So I studied hard, <laughs> uh, got into an MA degree actually in cultural geography. My MA is in cultural geography because I was interested in the cultural or regional differences in Japan within the country. There's East Japan and West Japan and how particularly their food habits different and language mm. as well and kinship structure. Actually, so it was between the Osaka region and the Tokyo region. So I worked on that. And while there, I became interested in anthropology. Or, well, I didn't know yet it was called anthropology. <laughs> I became interested in one particular temple or shrine. In I, uh, The place I stayed uh, is called Nara, which is a small town very close to Kyoto. I lived there for three years as a student. And in there's a big park there, Narako and Nara Park. And in that park is a temple where people offer rice scoops. So it's a rice scoop, and it's it's not a scoop to eat with, but to serve rice with. It's a bit shaped like a normal wooden scoop, but so you don't eat with it, you serve the rice. It was a very bizarre location. In that temple, it was covered in these wooden scoops, and nobody could explain to me why they're there. So I started doing some research about it myself, and although I was supposed to do this research about regional difference, in the end, I completely changed my topic, and my topic became this rice scoop. And first I was in folklore studies, kind of. my The good thing was the person, my supervisor in this university in Nara, said to me, 
just do whatever you're interested in, whether it's geography or folklore studies or Japanese studies, you can do whatever you want. So I decided to work on this object and I uh, traced the history of it and then I became more and more interested in it. And then I went to this library, it's a very bizarre coincidence, in the Museum of Ethnology in Osaka, which has a everything written about Japanese customs, which are in English and Japanese, and uh, there was a whole section about material culture. I didn't even know that was an area you could study at that time, so I picked out one book, and it was a book by Danny Muller called Material Culture and Mass Consumption from 1987. This was around 1993. And I thought, oh, this is fascinating. So it's his key, I don't know if you know the book, it's his key work about material culture. And I thought it was amazing. And I just got the internet and email. So I wrote to this professor, and he was in anthropology. And I said to him, oh, I'm studying these rice scoops, and it's folklore studies, it's objects, but I don't know what to do with it, and I want to perhaps do a PhD. And he said, just come. And that's how I ended up at UCL in London. They gave me a scholarship to go and study anthropology there. That's a long story. <laughs> Yeah, so my interest developed, but it was more out of curiosity of things. I mean, not only this scoop shrine I use as one example, but definitely this kind of material world and how it affects the social life of people. I became very interested in that. And initially, it was very limited in that it was very folkloristic historically. But then I realized within anthropology, this new booming area of material culture studies was happening, and it was particularly happening at UCL in London, where uh, Danny Miller was one of the professors. So I was very lucky to find that book, because otherwise I probably wouldn't have ended up in that department of anthropology studying material culture. Yeah, <laughs> you actually answered my next question oh, as really, well, which yeah. was... I'm you bad know. in that way, probably. <laughs> <laughs> well, I wanted to ask mm. you which, you know, theoretical ideas would you say have influenced you the mm. most? And there are any certain scholars that have uh, mm. meant much to you. But like, yes. you have already answered some of that, but maybe there are some yes, things else you can try. Clearly, within anthropology, that mm. has been a huge influence. Not mm. only his intellectual thinking about consumption, the role of objects, particularly the role of material culture in contemporary life, because as you know, before that it was material culture within anthropology was very much situated in the museum and collections, and that's something I'm far less interested in. I think where Danny Miller was very important that he really pointed out that we have to do ethnographies of everyday practices where, where people are engaging with the material world. So going back to almost combining very fieldwork-based work, not museum-based work, with the material world. And that's kind of, since I preach that to my own students as well, that's a very important work, particularly at the time when I started my PhD in 1997. That was not been done much. Now, of course, there's more and more students, and UCL is still one of the key centers where that work is done, but ourselves at Oxford, at Cambridge, at Goldsmiths, within the UK, uh, that work is still going on. But it's important to say within other European countries, obviously, similar work has been done, but often that's been perhaps not within anthropology, perhaps Volkenkunde or those kind of approaches. And often what they don't have is this more ethnographic approach. I think that's really what anthropology brings to the study of the material world as well, I think. So it's really an everyday... I mean, and also, again, the everyday, not only this kind of iconic images, but just how people use objects, but also um, environments, spaces are important as well, I think. But other influence you were asked, well, also, I mean, I've been influenced by perhaps within anthropology or perhaps sociology, by somebody like Bourdieu, I've been reading quite intensely, and I think he is really a 
I mean, of course, an influential figure for material culture, for consumption, but also as um, an anthropologist and this notion of doing militant anthropology, active anthropology, applied anthropology. I think this very important role he played in that. And he was really early on, he was doing this experiment with fieldwork in Algeria, but then also in his own home village, almost like seeing one in relation to the other. So he was doing anthropology at home. So he was really a pioneer, I think, in many ways. So, and he was a very nice person as well. It's obvious that uh, Japan has been a very huge interest mm. of you. Is there mm. any particular reason why? Well, yeah. I mean, as I said earlier, I was particularly interested in language, and that's perhaps because I'm Belgian. I'm, I think we'll know we don't have any Belgian language per se. Most Belgians know two or three languages. I mean, where I grew up, it's probably Flemish. I'm Flemish myself and German, because we grew up very close to the German border. So German comes quite easy. To me, while French, which is our official second language, is more difficult for me. Now, I have passive knowledge. I can read, but I can't speak it anymore. I used to do it very badly. <laughs> but because depending on where in Belgium you go up, you have different language skills. But most Belgians speak at least two, sometimes three languages. So language has always been important to me, but also I've seen it always as a, a tool and also linked with power because uh, most where I grew up is a region in Belgium, Limburg it's called, and we have a very strong accent and we sing a lot. So even for me moving from there to Leuven where I did my undergraduate degree close to Brussels, people would right away know where I'm coming from and it's kind of a deprived area. So people, there's lots of judgment going on. So people would try to hide their accent. So I really understood, I think, quite early on, language is power. <laughs> so I thought I want to learn another language, but something completely different, nothing European. So initially I was thinking, and I was intrigued by the characters. I think they're, um, it's an amazing system where just by, it, it, it tells its own story, the pictogram. So I got completely obsessed by it. And to learn, I was going to learn Chinese first, but Right before I went to university, the Tiananmen massacre happened. That was in 1988. And most of the funding for Chinese studies was cut. And I thought, if you learn a language like that, you have to go to that place to learn it properly. What's the point otherwise? And for me, be able to go, because I'm, I'm not coming from an affluent background, I needed funding. So I thought, well, Japanese, that was the booming years. They still were funding students to go and study there. So I chose Japanese. So it was very practical reason initially. But then I think it was a very, a very good choice. But also, um, I think probably it's easier to learn Japanese than Chinese. I now think I mean, it will be problematic. Some people will disagree. But I do think at least reading and writing, which I thought was very important, you can learn Japanese quicker. What's interesting, I think, is that to read a newspaper, you only need 2,000 characters in Japanese to read it well. So I spent all my time learning these 2,000 characters. So after four years, I could read a newspaper. And then I, I went to Japan. So my main, my initial interest was language. And then I was lucky to get the scholarship to go. And then while I was there, I became much more interested in, in the people actually living there, the Japanese. And I've been going there, as I said this morning, since 1992. And I have made the most amazing friends there. I have like almost the Japanese families there that I know now for more than 20 years. So, and they have visited me. So it's a very tight relationship. So it's like a second home, I would say. So it's mm. easy for me to go there. But also, I mean, obviously as a, I'm, I'm still interested in, in exploring lots of different issues in more detail. Mm. Very interesting to hear, like how it starts at one point and ends in the yep. end. Yeah, it's a very kind of, 
like earlier the speaker said, he doesn't like organic. But there is something organic about it. Of course, you make choices, but mm. then also things happen, and you meet mm. people along the way that point you in certain directions, I think. Mm. It's quite important to have some good mentors. And I was, I think, always very lucky in having people that have been very generous in giving me their time, often just by me writing to them. They answered. People in Japan, I would write to anybody. <laughs> Now I think about it, oh my God, I was one of those really pests, I think. I would write letters to, if I, if I read a good book, I would write to the person and ask me. I was just a student. I was just 18, 19, 20. Ask for advice, what to do. And you would be surprised how many really famous people answer. And this was before the internet. They would write, we would write letters. So, so I mean, even in, in Japan, lots of, I met a, an amazing professor, Obayashi, who I didn't know is a key figure in, in, in Japanese folklore studies. He answered me and he pointed me in so many directions. So I think you have to be a little bit lucky, but you also have to be proactive. So now when I get students writing to me, I will always make sure to get back to them. It's kind of because I think I was helped in that way a lot as well. So it's kind of a reciprocity. Let's move on to your、yeah. uh, own research.、Mm. Did you have a talk at the Department of Social Anthropology, <laughs> Stockholm University, just a couple of hours ago about your ongoing research on amateur photographic practices in contemporary Japan? I would like us to talk more about this. So I was wondering, could you perhaps、uh, summarize、uh, this talk and the project in general quite briefly、uh, to、uh, our listeners who weren't able to attend? Okay, yes. Well, as I said before I started to talk、mm. to you earlier as well, it's.、Um, Research I started in 2009, and my interest、uh, came out of an earlier ethnography I did in 2003, where I、um, lived for a year in the Kansai region, which is the area around Osaka, Kyoto, Nara, Kobe, <laughs> where about 22 million Japanese, or I guess about 20% of the population, live. And I lived in people's homes for a year, and while living in those homes, I、uh, became really intrigued by the fact that people. Don't display photos much. And like most people listening to the podcast, will also know that Japanese people tend to take a lot of photos. It's a stereotype, but there's some, some truth in it. So I was very intrigued where do all the photos go and what happens to them. So I start, I had those questions in 2003, but in 2009, I finally started really doing research about it. So it's,、uh, it looks at What's the role of amateur photography in people's everyday lives? So it's not professional photography. And how perhaps by using photographs,、uh, people create a certain imagination about themselves and their family, but also beyond their family. And how perhaps photography also, analog and digital, enables Uh, Japanese people, like people anywhere, to kind of、um, question、uh, normative practices.、And、that's kind of what that's one aspect, but it's a larger idea、uh, I'm interested in is how、uh, these practices in Japan are very much linked, well, in many European countries as well, with kind of ritual ceremonies like weddings, funerals,、uh, the birth of a baby, these kind of、um, ritual events, and how in Japan there is a huge Uh, industry that developed around these rituals.、Uh, one of them is the photographic industry and photo studios, other businesses that focus on photography and how they actually provide people with cameras and、um, now it's all online,、um, different packages they can buy, and, but also how they tell people or inform people about what the correct way of doing these rituals are. So how ritual knowledge in Japan is commercialized and 
although commercialization is often seen as a negative force that might lead to a less enchanted world or to alienation, whatever one would call it, in this case, it's often the commercial businesses that have enabled people to continue doing these rituals. And I think in that way, Japan is quite special. I mean, I'm not saying unique. I think it happens in other places as well. But also to show that the commercialization not necessarily has to be a negative thing or have a negative impact, I think. As I said this morning, these are just loose ideas. So trying to put this, the photography and this kind of notion of commercialization and the commercial, the role of the commercial world or commerce on ritual life and see how those two might come together. You said you don't think it's unique but mm. special. Mm. Why would you say that uh, photography as a practice is so special to Japanese people? Uh, but I don't think it's special. I mean, I think perhaps because of the technological developments, they already in the 70s or even earlier, they developed um, lots of the technologies. I mean, and some of it uh, came from America or, or even from Europe, but they have developed it in a way that became democratized much earlier than in other European countries. It was much easier to get these cameras cheaper or cheaply. I mean, still not everybody could afford it than in Europe, so people had these tools to work with, so they would then take a lot of photographs. So I don't think in that, I mean, that might be unique. I wouldn't, because I don't like the word unique, because it's used so often in relation to Japan. It was specific of its time that they had these technologies and they were easily available. And then, of course, that was around the same time that people start traveling. They could afford to, I mean, it's the 60s, you have the boom years, the economy is picking up. More and more Japanese traveling abroad with those cameras, taking photos. And since, as we said this morning, lots of people went on these package tours where they traveled in groups. And of course, they they felt a bit, um, how do you say, you in a in a strange country. So they also traveled together in group. It wasn't like the backpack experience or anything, but that must have felt for many Europeans, as we said this morning, as a strange phenomenon. These people coming out of the bus and taking lots of photos. But I guess for them it was just a way to record this extraordinary travel they were doing. Even now, I think only, I read some, I think 17% of Japanese have a passport. So that's how few people actually travel abroad. So if, to go abroad still is quite a unique one, we'd say, in this era where anybody can travel. There's still many people that never go abroad. So to go to Europe and visit these iconic places was a very big deal so they wanted to record it so they took lots of photos and perhaps because they felt um, a little bit out of their depth they might have taken more photos but as, as a, but I don't think it's, it's, it would be the same if my family went um, to, when they came actually to Japan when I was there they took constantly photographs so I don't think that per se there's something unique or essential Japanese about this thing of taking but I do think they they had the technology and everybody had almost more than one camera. So I can imagine that for Europeans in the 70s and 80s, that must have been quite a, an unusual uh, thing to see at the time. So that's where these stereotypes or these caricatures about Japanese with cameras come from, I think. You said that mm. you were interested in how they, they mm. don't display the mm. pictures. Yeah, and yeah. as you said in, during your talk, yeah. that they rather they store them. Yeah, yeah. How come they don't display their photos, like they, as they apparently take a lot of them? And how mm. come that some photos are presented and some are not? I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> no, I think, I mean, I don't know. I'm trying to still figure out why they don't 
display it. As I said, there are exceptions. Mm. So people do display photos of very small children, babies, or pets, mm. or ancestors. Mm. But I'm I'm trying to develop some kind of argument around this is because they are not persons. So it's um, either animals, obviously, small children are not supposed to be fully adults until or fully persons until they're seven or go to uh, to school. Still, that's still quite common idea and then ancestors obviously are spirits so that's why they do display that but why they don't dis- tend to display i just mean one reason is lots of people talk about as i said earlier that it's boasting it's jimam showing off but then for me it's a bit of a dilemma because if you live in these homes very few people visit anyway so people don't tend to visit each other in their homes so you know so who are they boasting to to themselves so this whole, I at the moment I'm not sure it's a it's a puzzle still. So I hope by the time I have my book finished I come up with a solution. But at the moment I don't I mean it's more it's a big question I'm having. I do know what they do with so they do circulate these images on Mars, as I said before the internet already, by making doubles and sharing them with other people. And again the infrastructure was there, so photo studios very cheaply would again be uh, producing doubles or even third or fourth sets people would get of the same photos that they then would share with people that they had the same experience with. Mm. Or the storing is interesting, as I said, because obviously people would often, all the photos they take, put in these kind of ephemeral albums where you just put the whole roll in there. The album came for free again. So you can really see how the these businesses also instigated some of those practices, I think. Obviously, one could say in kind of skeptical way for profit, but in a positive way also that some that again provides some of the infrastructure and knowledge to continue. So again, it, it goes both ways. But so yes, yeah, so they're store storing large quantities of photos in albums. And again, as I said this morning, what's interesting, those albums are not watched very often. They just kept to be kept. So it's at the moment I'm thinking it's just it's not the photo is not freezing a moment in time like as often in. European literature, you find, photograph is kind of about memory or a lost moment. No, it's just a fleeting moment you record and then you store it, which is very similar to how people take digital photographs these days. So in a way, the argument would be something like the Japanese photographic practices are very similar to digital practices today, but before the digital was there. So it's kind of interesting. So one one of the arguments that I want to make in the book will be something along those lines, that they would, lots of the things they would do, because they have very different understandings of time, I think, and transience. So it wasn't about keeping track of a kind of long-term memory, but just recording the moment and then you store it away. You don't have to look at it again. You've experienced it. But that's as far as I gone with this material so don't know how useful that answer is <laughs> how have you approached these kind of questions ethnographically by observing people by talking to them by yeah a lot of going through their photographic collections basically that's um, as, as i said this morning what's interesting is because people have kept a lot of this stuff so some people have a whole room full of albums or, as I said this morning, a New Year's cards with photographs of them. So by just analyzing the visual material culture that is left of the analog photographs. And then, of course, these days with the computer, people will show you their uh, their websites, their blogs, all those things. So it's basically it's just a participant observation. 
asking people to show you things and talk you through it or observe them doing it. That's how I try to address. But this research, because it has this historical aspect, of course, because this generation still has analog photos because the switch happened in around 1999 in Japan. So this material is still around. It's also very timely that one can now... Some people have allowed me to scan all their photo albums. So you can really see, and I have albums starting from 1920 till the last albums I have is 2006. So you can really trace these changes, technological changes, like from black and white to color, uh, from uh, different ways where people were still developing at home and then going for the first time to the photo studios with envelopes uh, where the uh, roles were developed, to panorama pictures. So you can really see the change. Also, lots of, particularly the men wanted to talk. I often let them tell me what they wanted to talk about, but they wanted to talk about their different cameras. And that's very interesting to see the camera technology changing. And um, you can really see the history of Japanese photography that way. And it's something that still needs to be done because so much of the the literature focuses either on the history, very general, of Japanese photography, which starts in whatever, 1840, 43, this very old history, or it's uh, professional photographers. So this kind of archive of material, which is going to disappear in a few... I mean, I'm not trying to do salvage anthropology either, but it's, it's a resource that I think one has to look at now, together with the contemporary practices, the digital practices, to kind of make sense of it. Because, and as I said, people now start to distinguish between digital and analog, and 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 or or see them as similar in many cases as well. So because both are seen as leaving some kind of trace as well. Um, but so that's I think the methods that I used on um, very much those I think. How was it like asking people <laughs> if you could go through all their albums? Was oh, it a sensitive pe- question to no, some? No, people love that. I think because as I said in my talk. Uh, Nobody shows an interest in it. Really. Like in many European countries, as well, you probably know when you visit, uh, especially older people, they have gathered all this material over a life and they, they are dying to tell you about it. So in that way, it was easy fieldwork. I think my previous fieldwork living in people's homes was much more difficult. I mean, this was difficult and I explained this morning in that it, I wasn't able to go for like one year and really um, look at this practice over a year, but I had to spread it over what was it, four, five years almost, but I went four summers and I collected eight months of fieldwork. So as I said this morning, that's very challenging, although I know this area very well, challenging in that the topic keeps on changing. So it's kind of, you go and each time you go, something has changed, a new kind of camera, new technology. So it's more challenging now to bring all that material together. But that's the nature of this kind of of topic, I think, as well, where it is a fast-changing, um, in, innovative technology. You mentioned it briefly, but I mm. thought maybe we could talk about mm. it more intensively, as most of our listeners wouldn't have attended this mm. talk, like, mm. about these New Year's cards, oh, these, yes. these stacks oh, yes, that people yes, store. Yes. yes, well, the New Year's cards are fascinating in that um, every year on the 1st of January, in most Japanese homes, people will await their New Year's cards to arrive. And these are normal cards uh, with often the zodiac animal on it, the date, whatever, 1st of January, say, 2009, which was the year of the cow, so you would have some kind of cow symbol. And then most of these photos these days, I think two-thirds almost of them, have photographs on them as well. 
and it's they arrive on the first of as long as you post them by December, like say twentieth, they will arrive on that day. And as I said in my in my talk, for example, in two thousand thirteen, it's a huge scale operation, big scale operation. Mm -hmm. um, in 2013, uh, more than 3,600,000 cards were circulated, so it's huge. And on average, people receive between 80 and 150, I mean, I mean adults, not children, 150 cards. So that's a lot of cards. So there was, and it's, and I was saying this one, it's quite competitive. Family members will, who has the biggest stack, who got, who didn't send us this year's so people spend quite some time with it. And the reason why they're sent is they're firstly a thank you for services um, that the person has done for you or just thank you general for things and it's often exchanged with people you don't see that often I mean although your family might exchange it's not exclusive but also they have the address of the sender and often it's uh, announcing something like I moved house or a new address or I married so I have a new name or my children were born or my children are doing this that they they went to school so it announces some new event but that means they're actually um, a database that kind of that's alive if you want so people actually each year the stack comes in they keep the stack until the following year so then if they for any reason need people's address they have easy access to it so in that way but what's interesting is so many of as I said two-thirds of these cards have photographs of them and what happens now, this is often the only time since people use digital um, cameras or digital food that they print out. This is often the only print that they make, which means that the period before New Year, people will take lots and lots of photos to find one iconic one or one that they really like. This only also the only time they will go through all their photos and they will save the data. So that's the kind of things that happen because of this New Year's exchange. So that, and I think that's quite unusual that even today it's still considered better to have a, a card sent on paper that send an electronic card. So that's kind of very important. Most people think that's a more a, a, a better expression of your real feelings than sending in. Even young people, I mean, some of them send emails, but as they, as they progress in life and perhaps as when they marry, then they will start doing the proper thing if you want and sending a card still today although people these days will make the cards with uh, software packages on their computer so that's not the problem it's just to send a paper objects with a photograph on it so that's still very common I mean still mean the, it goes up and down but I mean in 2013 we're still as I said more than three billion of those things sent so it's a big again a, a big um, a circulation of those goods again for the post office as a business also important to, to stress that that they kind of, uh, it's, I think for them probably a large part of their income comes from the circulation of these cards as well. Do they store all of these stacks or do they throw them away? No, so they keep them for a year at least. I mean, some people keep them longer and what they do after a year, because then they have a new stack, mm. right, normally coming in. So some people will stop, but mostly you get almost exactly replaced. And then they have the latest information, the latest addresses. But then what some people do, like I said, there's some that really put a lot of effort in putting these things together. And they're beautiful to look at or unusual. They will keep some. They will not throw the whole stack, but they keep them up and put them on their wall or put them in a special folder. I've come across that. So people will also keep some, but it's mainly about replacing this database with the new data that comes in. But it's people will have them. I mean, they might put them in a folder, but people try to. And some really organized people have a spreadsheet on their computer where they then change the data as the new cards come in. Mm. 
but many people keep them physically. So, so it's a kind of an interesting system, I think, in that way. Definitely. Mm. I thought, as a last question, I would ask you, what do you hope to contribute with this current project of yours? Hmm. Well, one important issue I think um, that I hope uh, the work will contribute to is um, the link between photography and memory. As I said, perhaps I've said already in one of the earlier answers, moving away from associating photography with memory only, which is very common, and I think it comes out of a very Western or European, North American way of thinking about memory and time and linear time. It's kind of, as I said earlier, freezing a moment and saving it, going back to it. While I think photographs, at least in the Japanese case, are much more about future and thinking forward. And it's not so important to hold on to these things. So that's kind of, that's, I think, in this general literature about photography, that's quite important. I mean, also, I, more in relation to Japan, as I said, I think the project will raise, hopefully, uh, some questions about this depicting Japan as a group or in society only. Although, as I said this morning, for many non-Japanese people, it might be very oppressive and normative and living according to rules. Within that framework, there's still a lot of creativity and in individuality or people and often using these new technologies in that way. So I want to um, depict a, bit, a better balanced understanding. So it's not either or. It's just a different way of doing things. So that's that's quite important. So it's more. And then the, the third point is what I said: this notion of how um, these commercial businesses in Japan are, are so important in keeping some of these ceremonies or rituals, everyday rituals, not big rituals in temples, alive. And what it does, in one way, it does create group spirit, if you want. But also within that, there's always space for the individual again. So as I said this morning, when people sell certain foods for a certain ritual occasion, there will always also be an opportunity for a, a single person to do the same ritual with the same food. So it's kind of, it's more, it's more democratic than, than one would think. It's not only about, you don't only have to be a family to participate in, in many cases. I think these businesses have caught on to the fact that there's huge changes in the makeup of Japanese societies, where there are still a lot of families, but there are many single people as well, um, people that don't want to marry or elderly people that live on their own. So th those shifts, I think many of, of those commercial businesses really have tuned into that as well. So that's, if I could contribute to those three uh, <laughs> streams of thought or, or issues, I would be very happy. Thank you very much mm. for doing this yeah and for your very interesting answers yes thank you thank you for interviewing me and i hope it uh, will be useful for people to listen thank you for listening to anthro talking you can find more of our podcasts at socan.su.se follow us on twitter at anthro talking or email us at anthro talking at gmail.com